0: As with any community or anything in the world, there are pros and cons, and it's messy and it's complicated, and there's a dark side and there's a light side. But I feel like I'm a better person now that I'm nomading. I feel like the people I meet are generally living their lives more authentically and more ethically. And so I feel like nomading has been a a net plus for the world, in spite of the fact that, you know, there have certainly been growing pains.
1: Aisling Green, and this is Unpacked, the podcast that unpacks one tricky topic in travel each week. And this week, we are exploring the complicated ethics of digital nomadism. Our guide for this episode is Chloe Arojado. Chloe is an associate editor here at Afar who heads up our destination stories. And as you'll hear in a second, she's also a digital nomad.
2: Hi, Chloe. Hey. <laughs> How are you? Good. Where are you? Where in the world are you? I'm actually in New York. (laughs) I'm currently in Harlem uh, in an apartment. And yeah, just really enjoying New York summer.
1: So basically, you're saying right now that you are actively digital nomading.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm digitally a, nomading. I don't know. Yeah, I guess the the digital nomading. I I use it as a verb. Everything can be a verb if you add an ing. So. Exactly. That's what we're doing. We're making new words right now. <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, I am actively digital nomading. I would say, <laughs> which is kind of perfect, I guess, for this episode. Well, what kind of sparked your interest in this story? before even Afar decided that this was something that we were interested in covering to some extent. I was an active digital nomad. There was a period of my life where I was living out of my car, traveling across the country, (laughs) and then typing articles at Panera Breads. (laughs) in random small towns Um, but it's been I think a very interesting ride seeing the rise of things like van life and how people are living out their digital nomad dreams you know whether that be being in a small town in another country or going to national parks every weekend I think just the amount of interesting people I've met and then seeing how travel has changed has made me like really interested in learning more about digital nomadism and how that's impacting travel overall yeah
1: and for this episode you focus specifically on ethics what has your experience around that been like how has that evolved for you as you've nomaded
2: <laughs> yeah exactly actually that's a great question because you know it's not something that i had thought about you know in the ethical sense when i first started doing it i was like okay i'm just working on my laptop in a coffee shop, <laughs> and then not really thinking broader than that, what that actually means. For me, it was visiting other countries, for example, when I was in Medellin in Colombia, and yeah. seeing, you know, the extent that digital nomadism has impacted communities. There's like a whole neighborhood called El Poblado, which is basically the hotspot for digital nomads. And it's very obvious in the way that, you know, like how much more expensive things are over there when it comes to apartments, foods, the makeup of the community there, a lot of foreign expats and seeing, you know, I guess the different attitudes people had towards digital nomads, because for them, they were like, oh, we're helping the Colombian economy by putting our money there and, you know, thinking that's kind of the end of the conversation while locals are like, no, you're actually displacing us raising rents and doing a lot of things that a lot of people I think read about when it comes to digital nomads, especially because a lot of people who are digital nomads, as you'll hear in the podcast episode, do have privileges, you know, whether that be like passport privilege or, you know, socioeconomic privilege. Um, And seeing how that can really change communities, even if, in your eyes, you're just working on a laptop in a coffee shop.
1: (laughs) There's going to be so much to dig into. Well, before I let you go, you have some stories online that are actually offering some concrete advice for digital nomads, right?
2: Yeah, we're going to definitely have some things on, you know, whether that be places to look at if you're interested in working remotely or Intel as to you know what is exactly a digital nomad, how would you define it and kind of getting into that. Because sometimes it's like, can be very hard to define as we know in this episode. <laughs> Sweet,
1: okay, uh, we will link to all of that in our show notes. Well, thank you so much, Chloe. Thank you,
2: Ace, I'm really excited <laughs> to get into it.
1: Yeah, all right, let's go. Yeah, woo.
2: <laughs> Picture this. You're in Bali, Indonesia, working remotely from your laptop. Right outside your window are the calm blue waters and white sands of the beach. It's the perfect day to go surfing. And you decide you're going to do just that. At least after your Zoom meeting. You've probably heard of the not-so-elusive digital nomad. Whether they're creating hotspots in Bali and Lisbon or allegedly raising rent prices in Mexico. These work-from-anywhere travelers seem to be all the rage in our post-pandemic society. I mean, it makes sense considering that working away from the office is now so much more common. In 2022, 34% of employed people did at least some of their work at home, compared to just 24% in 2019. But what exactly is a digital nomad anyways? I spoke with Olga Hanninen, a researcher at the University of Eastern Finland, and co-authored a 2020 paper that attempted to define this group of workers. And as it turns out, the term digital nomad was actually first used more than 20 years ago by authors Sugio Makimoto and David
1: Manners. They wrote a book called Digital Nomad and they tried to estimate the pace of technological development and how that would
2: influence our life, how that would change our travel patterns and the way we accomplish work. In that book, Makimoto and Manners actually predicted the remote work situation, and it was scarily accurate. Listen to this quote from the book. With the ability to tap into every worldwide public information source from anywhere on the globe, and the ability to talk to anyone via a video link, humans are going to be given the opportunity, if they want it, of being global nomads. And remember, this book was published in 1997. According to Hannan's paper, there are three parts to being a digital nomad. First, they're highly mobile professionals. Second, they have location-independent jobs. And thirdly, they travel on a semi-permanent basis. But it's important to remember that there's actually no one agreed upon set of qualifications that makes someone a digital nomad. For example, Self-employment tech company MBO Partners says digital nomads are people who work remotely and travel for various reasons and lengths of time. But anthropologist Dave Cook says digital nomads need to visit at least three locations a year in order to qualify as one. But there are some generally accepted similarities and themes, despite the different definitions. Usually
0: they are
1: defined as Westerners or Europeans or in general, holders of strong passports. So meaning that digital nomads are coming from uh, the countries that have extensive travel possibilities.
2: Oftentimes, these people work in sectors like IT, digital marketing, writing, and even online teaching. As to why someone would want to become a digital nomad, it all comes down to travel. Their ability to explore places flexibly makes them a traveler and consumer category all on their own. So much so that tourism boards are working on special ways to market their city, state, or even country to them. And several destinations around the world are appealing to remote workers by creating digital nomad visas. These special visas allow travelers to stay, and more importantly, spend in a specific country for months or even years. There are more than 20 countries that have developed visa programs specifically targeting remote workers. And these programs vary from country to country. Colombia's visa invites remote workers to stay for two years given that they don't work for Colombian companies. (laughs) Meanwhile, Canada released its plans for a digital nomad visa in July 2023, actually offering to extend a traveler's stay in the country if they land a job with a Canadian employer. Another country getting in on the action is Croatia, which released its digital nomad visa in 2020. Their visa allows remote workers and their family members to stay in Croatia for up to a year given that they make around 2,500 euros a month. One of the visa's biggest advocates is Lucy Jerkovic, head of the global PR department for the Croatian National Tourist Board. You're attracting them
3: to a country that has a mild climate, that's well-connected, that's beautiful in and of itself, that tourists flock to all the time. For them to come and enjoy it in the off-season,
2: when the cost of accommodation is less... Croatian cities Dubrovnik and Istria have further appealed to digital nomads with a program called Digital Nomads in Residence. Usually held over a month, the program puts together cultural activities and workshops, encouraging digital nomads to spend time in the destination when it's not flooded with tourists. What I
3: think we're doing as a tourist board is we're trying to make Croatia more interesting in the shoulder season and year round which, you know, digital nomads can also do that, come in the spring, come in the fall, come in the middle of winter.
2: Yep, even winter. Lucy says that in 2022, Easter hosted the program during the first week of December. And while it wasn't exactly warm enough for a swim by the coast, the mild weather was pretty good for being out in nature. So if they come and they stay in December and see that, you know, instead
3: of one restaurant in the place being open, there can be two or three, then there's going to be more people coming there. And I think that will just kind of alleviate the burden in the high peak season. And if they're making significantly more money, they have a lot of money to be able to spend. So then you're gonna be developing products for them to spend
2: it on. So it is a way of bringing in money into the systems. Croatia's digital nomad visa offers a number of benefits for remote workers. One of its biggest being that they're not required to pay income taxes to the Croatian government. But that doesn't mean travelers are exempt from paying taxes back home. Plus, because the country entered the Schengen zone at the beginning of 2023, Holders of the visa are also allowed free movement throughout this region of 27 countries in Western and Central Europe during their year in Croatia. All this to say, there are definitely benefits for digital nomads. And Lucy, as well as the Croatian government, believe the remote work system has benefits for Croatia too. Like culture-changing benefits. The country has
3: a low population, so which keeps decreasing from census to census. That's not good. It's a country that's been known for emigrating. So leaving the
2: country, bringing people back is also important for longer term demographic growth. Some of these digital nomads could eventually become full time and taxpaying residents.
3: If you're bringing people into the country that explore the country and see it as a good place to live and work, they might forego the taxation benefit for that one year, and they move here permanently, taking the taxes into consideration.
2: But what about the not-so-positive effects of digital nomads we all hear about? As foreigners with higher incomes come to stay in a place like Croatia, I had to ask Lucy, has there been a lot of pushback from locals? I don't think so. I think more pushback ends
3: up happening, but that happens to students as well as other populations that are residing in cities that tend to be in high tourist areas. It tends to be those that want to stay longer term that get pushed out of accommodation due to
2: the seasonality
3: of tourism in the country. In reality,
2: Lucy says digital nomads are more likely to be on the other side of the issue. Like students, They may have trouble finding long-term accommodation during the high season in popular cities like Dubrovnik and Split.
3: They're not the cause of prices going up. Even in cities like Zagreb, which, you know, rent has gone up significantly, you know, when they compare to their home countries, they might be paying less than in their home countries. So they feel like they're getting a deal. It might be more expensive than what someone here would be paying. So someone local might be saying, oh, look, they're, you know, bringing the rent up. But usually most locals would not be able to pay for the type of accommodation some of the digital nomads are targeting
2: anyways. Besides a few additional amenities, Lucy said she hasn't really seen landlords charging more or transforming their apartments to appeal to digital nomads. I think transforming in the sense of giving a desk space
3: of making sure that there's high speed internet available, that it's not just one of those sort of mobile internets that you know they might have put in in the high season. Some have invested in those types of modifications, but it's not something that has increased the cost or has changed sort of the structure and the significant level.
1: Feeding children is one of the most basic human responsibilities. So why do we so often feel like we're failing at it? I'm Jane Black. And I'm Liz Dunn. We're moms. And we're food journalists. And in Pressure Cooker, we tackle some of the thorniest issues around how we feed our kids. How important is family dinner? And why do kids refuse to eat their vegetables? To find out, we're talking to experts and hearing from parents locked in the daily struggle to feed little people with big personalities. Listen to Pressure Cooker wherever you get your
2: podcasts. Not all communities have seen remote workers as a welcome answer to tourism ills. But for that side of the story, you have to travel halfway around the world to the shores of Hawaii. During the pandemic, Hawaii was one of the states that suffered the most. Hawaii is actually highly dependent on the tourism economy, and the pandemic just destroyed the industry. By August 2020, more than one out of six jobs were gone. That year, a nonprofit called Movers and Shakas created a program inviting 50 remote workers to live in Hawaii for a month. The program was a public-private initiative developed by leaders from local businesses, like the Hawaiian restaurant chain Zippies, and government entities like Hawaii's Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism. Its main goal? Boost Hawaii's economy.
4: The idea was, you know, let's bring 50 remote workers, including returning kama'aina, or people who had been born and raised here, to come for a month and experience Hawaii in a more authentic way and be able to volunteer with their specific skill sets and expertise professionally for local nonprofits.
2: That's Nicole Lim, Executive Director of Movers and Shakas. She said that the program was immediately and wildly popular, like 90,000 applications for 50 spots level popular.
4: There was an incredible interest in this program. It was covered by everyone from New York Times to CNN to Wall Street Journal and just nationally very popular.
2: But Nicole wasn't always so thrilled with the program. Before she joined Movers and Shakas, she, along with other locals, protested the idea of remote workers coming to Hawaii's shores.
4: So a mainland acquaintance had reached out and asked me, oh, should I apply for this? And when I looked it up, I was like, WTF, you know, like, why are we bringing tech bros drenched with COVID to Hawaii during a pandemic, they're going to drive my rent up, they're going to destroy the aloha spirit, and they're going to harass dolphins, maybe monk seals. And I felt so strongly about this that I wrote an op-ed in the local daily newspaper here, the Star Advertiser, against the program.
2: But in an ironic twist of fate, the board reached out and asked if she was interested in running the program. The opportunity to shape the program made Nicole check her own perspective, not just as a Hawaiian resident, but also as a traveler. Before returning to Hawaii during the pandemic, Nicole had actually been away for 20 years, traveling around the world living a little bit of what she calls an eat, pray, love meets wild type of existence. Writing her op-ed and then subsequently becoming a part of the Movers in Shaka's program kind of made her confront the anti-outsider sentiment she felt, especially as she herself had spent a good chunk of her life benefiting from the constant exchange of experiences, ideas, and connections one can usually find while traveling.
4: That us first them tribal mentality, that, that anti-outsiderism is so innate, like it is psychologically programmed, evolutionarily programmed in our brains, and it's, and it's strong, it's powerful, it's palpable, and we have to acknowledge that it exists. We can't really deny or repress it And also kind of do that inner work, work through the discomfort and ask ourselves, well, how do we bring newcomers into a community? How do we learn and grow from each other? And how do we ultimately hold everyone accountable to the community, including ourselves?
2: With this first group of digital nomads, Nicole wanted to emphasize the importance of Living Hawaii's values. Values like kindness and compassion in the spirit of aloha and kuleana, the reciprocal relationship that comes from a person's responsibility. But even though she set out to create a community with good intentions, the program participants weren't exactly welcomed with open arms.
4: It was kind of what I just, what I wrote in that op-ed, like why are we bringing people into Hawaii during COVID and they tend to have a lot of money and they're going to like rent or buy places which did happen actually not necessarily participants in our program but a lot of um, remote workers a lot of people from california um, came and bought places here this is a trend over decades now but you know people who are born and raised here can't afford to stay and so they have to move away we became i think a, a lightning rod for that like a place to put that anger
2: so nicole got to work consistently evolving the program to match the needs of the destination. With assistance from the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, she and the program decided to partner with a hotel for their second cohort in 2022. Participants shared a floor in the hotel as the program aimed to create a sort of Olympic Village-style atmosphere. The organization shifted the focus away from recruiting remote workers, instead directing efforts at helping new and returning residents live and work in Hawaii. The program also decided to appeal to local employers and help them retain and empower leaders.
4: It's kind of like we're a startup, you know, and we're trying to evolve with the world. We're always thinking about how can we make the biggest impact on Hawaii.
2: For Nicole, the program is all about bringing in talent that can benefit the state in some way.
4: I think remote workers, like anyone, have an opportunity and and a responsibility to their host communities, right, to to be a part of it to contribute and i encourage remote workers to to do so you know there might not be like a movers and shakers remote worker program that that helps facilitate that so you know you might have to take more of an initiative but like anything i think you know the more you're a part of a community the deeper the experience you have is
2: LIM has learned a lot as the program's executive director and has suggestions for remote workers hoping to integrate with the communities they visit. First, think about how you're consuming resources in a community. Even if you're just staying for a week, ask yourself, what do you have to learn? And second, think about how you can give to the community. Not just in the sense of money, but also in the shared sense of responsibility for the place you're staying. It's a lesson that Brent Hardinger and Michael Jensen, a couple from Seattle, have learned over the years. They've traveled nomadically around the world since 2017, and their newsletter, Brent and Michael are Going Places, focuses on their adventures as a gay digital nomad couple and has accrued more than 4,000 subscribers. While they acknowledge that digital nomads, like them, can create an impact on communities, they also feel a lot of the sentiment against digital nomads isn't exactly warranted.
0: I I feel like, some of the backlash against nomading has been so silly because they're comparing the world of nomading to some perfect paradise that doesn't exist and that wouldn't exist if nomads didn't exist. As with any community or anything in the world, there are pros and cons and it's messy and it's complicated and there's dark side and there's a light side. But for me personally, I feel like I'm a better person now that I'm nomading. I feel like the people I meet are generally better. They're living their lives more authentically and more ethically than I think the typical American.
2: In Brunt's eyes, nomadic has been a net plus for the world, despite the growing pains.
0: As I said, I've drunk the Kool-Aid, but I I think that a lot of times the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. And people, people talk about this and they don't know what they're talking about. They have not talked to local communities like we have. They don't know what nomading is, they they just have vague impressions that they get from Instagram. Or they focus on the worst
2: examples yes. of,
0: of the change.
2: Michael even agrees on some of the safeguards governments put in place to stop digital nomads from potentially causing problems.
5: I 100% support government. I support Barcelona for regulating Airbnbs and keeping apartments affordable for people who live there. Anything the local population wants to do in terms of regarding tourism in their country, I think that's great. They have the right. They should be doing what they think is best for their community.
2: To be the type of digital nomads that aren't bad on the internet, the couple makes sustainable tourism a core part of their nomadic adventures. Their top tip? Don't contribute to over-tourism in popular places.
0: We like to live in second and third tier cities, sort of off the beaten track. That's where we'll set down for a month or two or three. And then in between those stops, we will go to the big city, the big tourist attraction, we'll stay there for a week and then we'll be tourists. They started doing
2: this after their first year on the road. They noticed that locals in really popular destinations were frustrated with all the tourists, which also made it hard to meet people. But leave the hotspots and it's a completely different story.
0: You go five feet to either direction off the beaten track and people are so flattered and honored you come to stay in their community and then it's really easy to meet local people. And they're honored that you're there, and it's just a better experience. Brent and Michael also try to lessen their leakage,
2: which is a measurement of how many tourism dollars leave the local economy and instead benefit multinational corporations, foreign companies, or even countries. For them, minimizing leakage comes in the form of being hypervigilant when spending money. They do things like hire local guides and stay at places run by people in the community, even if it's an Airbnb. But economics aside, one of the biggest ways they've made an effort to become a part of the community is by fighting for causes they believe in.
5: As a gay couple, what we try and focus on is shedding light on on certain discriminations that are happening. When we were in Istanbul, pride is illegal in Turkey the past five or six years. And these really brave young people in Istanbul held pride anyway. And we went and attended it and we we marched with them and we got tear gassed along with them. And then we wrote
2: about it. So we shared their story. For Brent and Michael, community involvement means writing articles about the lessons they've learned from the people they encounter, as well as interviewing members of the gay communities in the places they visit. They say, whatever issue you're passionate about, find a way to support it find a way to do it.
5: Maybe you're really concerned with the environment. Maybe you're concerned with racial issues. Maybe it's equality of women, how women are treated in different countries. All kinds of uh, volunteer opportunities you can do. But
2: Michael says, don't let perfect be the enemy of good enough
5: you're not going to go out and solve all the world's problems in one fell swoop but do tend a little bit to your corner of the world and you're going to make it a little bit better And if everybody does that well things do get better
1: what a great note to end on you know this idea that we can make a positive impact on the communities that we visit and honestly even if we're not a digital nomad and as chloe highlighted throughout the episode It's almost impossible to fully define the ethics of working remotely. So much is dependent on the destination and on the perspective. We've heard stories about how people can see remote workers as a solution to tourism problems, as well as the ways that they can make a destination's problems worse. It's a lot to sit with. And Chloe also shared that it can be disheartening when communities we visit aren't as welcoming as we want them to be. But, she says, as travelers, we have the power to change perceptions, and it really starts with a genuine effort to connect with others. If you'd like to test out this lifestyle, we'll share links to some of our digital nomad stories in our show notes, including the ones that Chloe mentioned at the top of the episode. And you can keep up with Chloe's constantly moving lifestyle on Instagram at @heychloek. If you'd like to follow Brent and Michael, check out their website and sign up for their newsletter at brentandmichaelaregoingplaces.com. To learn more about movers and shakas, visit moversandshakas.org. And if you're interested in Croatia's digital nomad visa, apply at mup.gov.hr. We'll share the full link in our show notes. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we'll be back with another If These Walls Could Talk, our series that explores the stories and secrets hotels can tell us about the places we visit. We'll see you then. Ready for more unpacking? Visit afar.com and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at afarmedia. If you enjoyed today's exploration, I hope you'll come back for more great stories. Subscribing makes this easy. You can find Unpacked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to rate and review the show. It helps other travelers find it. This season, we also want to hear from you. Is there a travel dilemma, trend, or topic you'd like us to explore? Email us at unpacked This has been Unpacked, a production of Afar Media. The podcast is produced by Aislinn Green and Nikki Galteland. Music composition by Chris Collin. And remember, the world is complicated. We're here to help you unpack it.